0: Well, good morning, Lakewood. We are going to continue in our worship this morning as we dive back into Genesis 6. So this is Genesis 6. We're just going to cover eight verses this morning. So if you would stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy and inspired word. This is Genesis 6. Now it happened when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. But the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good in appearance, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he indeed is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I regret That I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, looming large over this section of scripture are the twin truths of the grief of God for the ungodly and the grace of God for the remnant, his remnant. The grief of God is always triggered by the sin of man. The disobedience of man, which is then followed by the righteous judgment of God. Even apocalyptic righteous judgment. But what's so astonishing is that he always makes a way for the remnant, for his people. Bringing hope where there was no hope. Bringing mercy where there was no mercy. And bringing grace where there was no grace. So out of the grief of God and the judgment of God comes the grace of God. This pattern culminated almost 2,000 years ago when the greatest grief of God over the sin of man was followed by the greatest grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's abundant grace always emerges out of God's abundant grief. And abundant grief is what we find in Genesis 6. Because there has never been darker days than the days of Noah which led to the greatest judgment mankind has ever seen. So we have to ask and answer the question, what was it that grieved God to the point that he'd literally wipe out all of mankind except for one family and bring destruction to the entire planet? We know it's clear from this account in Genesis 6, something radically changed. In these eight verses, it began with mankind going about his business populating the planet but then it ends with yahweh saying i will blot out man whom i've created from the face of the land from animal from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky for i regret that i have made them the answer to what caused such a reversal lies in understanding The lines of the Son of God and the daughters of men in verse 2 that produced an unholy offspring that populates the earth and brings a tsunami of sin. The controversy centers not so much around the, the identity of the daughters of men. We know they're not the daughters of God. But as the daughters of men, at minimum, they are unbelievers We know from verse 1, Moses focused on the daughters born in particular to emphasize the population boom, with daughters giving birth to daughters, giving birth to daughters, giving birth. The real wild card here is who are these sons of men? It is the identity of the sons of God, that is. That is the interpretive knot that we must untie to understand the rest of these verses. So we're going to look at the lines of controversy, the lines of context, the lines of continuity, the lines of connection, and even look at the line of the Nephilim. Now, before we dive into these lines of controversy and the theological weeds therein, let me just say these verses of Genesis 6 are some of the most difficult in Scripture, and they result in arguably one of the greatest divides among theologians who have exposited these eight verses. If you look at the two main theories of Genesis 6, you've got the angelic theory on one hand and the line of Seth theory on the other hand. You could literally stack up the books of all the theologians that believe in one and the books of all the theologians that believe in the other, and they'd be about the same. All that to say, if you disagree with me when I'm done, (laughs) that's fine. I understand. I could argue your point right with you, as I have struggled with these verses over the last few weeks. But as you know, as Bible students, it is these tugs of war over Scripture that God uses us uses divinely to drive us deeper and deeper into Scripture, even when it's painful, even when it's frustrating, even when it's sleep depriving, because we always end up better off, better equipped more edified, and more encouraged because we've been built up in truth. Why? Because it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search out a matter. Now, I have to say, some controversial passages in Scripture have enormous implications on our faith because misinterpretation can challenge the very character of God. It can challenge the very veracity of his word well thankfully this section of genesis 6 is not that hill to die on because your ultimate position on the identity of the offspring of the sons of god and the daughters of men on the nephilim or the mighty ones is not and never will be a litmus test for any denomination seminary any church body it's certainly not an indication of regeneration or lack thereof So we have to ask, what is it about this controversial section of Scripture that makes it one of the hottest topics for online speculation and coffee shop Christians? You know what it is? It's the seemingly supernatural characters and the supernatural offspring that appear to result from their sexual involvement with humans. Even unbelievers who don't have an ounce of curiosity about the core of our faith, like justification by faith or penal substitutionary atonement, they'll suddenly perk up when the Bible seems to go totally (laughs) sci-fi with talk of alien invasion, a giant race of people, even transhumanism, and that very odd breaking of the species barrier between the spirit world doing what is unnatural with humans producing an unimaginable offspring. It sounds sensational. It sounds speculative. It's full of fantasy. It's mysterious. All that to say we must proceed with caution, and we do what we always do here, and that is based on the context. What is the most literal, plain meaning of the text? As we search out who are these sons of God who took the daughters of men... As wives. So let's begin with point one in your outline the lines of controversy. Now, as to the disparities of interpretation of these verses, what I'm not gonna do is forensically present four different theories and then ask you to pick one. Michelle and I sat under a preacher that did that for years. Every controversial topic, he would run to this side of the stage and say, These people believe this thing. And then he'd run over here and he'd go, These people believe this thing. And we always left there going, you're the messenger. You're the pre- you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You're the preacher. You're the man of God. What does the word of God say? Right? Amen. I'm not going to do that. We are going to land on one idea here, um, on, on, on one point. So uh, one more caveat is, uh, although I don't agree with the other three interpretations, the other three theories, I have a tremendous amount of respect for those I am at odds with. Let me just say, it's not easy going up against John MacArthur, Derek Kidner, James Montgomery Boyce, and Hank Morris, just to name a few. Uh, men of good faith can differ on this section of Scripture. So, as I've said, the main key that turns the lock of this whole section is who are the sons of God. So let me give you the four theories. These are the four theories. This is the angelic theory. So some say they are fallen angels. Demon spirits embodied in human form or in in their fallen state. And they cohabitate with human women. That's the angelic theory. Number two is the divine king's theory, where they say that mighty men, even divine kings, even those tied into the Nephilim, uh, they marry and they dominate human women. So that's the the divine king's theory. And then there's the believer-unbeliever theory. Which means simply that the sons of God are the line of Seth. Are uh, the sons of God are the believers, and the daughters of men are unbelievers. That's the believer-unbeliever theory. And number four is the line of Seth theory. And the line of Seth theory says that the sons of God are the line of Seth, and the daughters of men are the line of Cain. So let's look at the first theory which is the most common theory even today. It's called the angelic theory. Now, this theory has seemingly strong, very strong scriptural support. And it is here we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Because even though this theory is sensational, it does seemingly have merit, and it must be taken seriously. The proponents of this view primarily rely not so much on the context and continuity in Genesis four and five, but rather Old Testament and New Testament accounts, which, if their accounts are scriptural, it's a sound practice of good biblical exegesis by using the whole counsel of God. So, so, but we must look at them carefully. What supporting texts they use. So, first, we're going to take up with the other uses of the phrase "sons of God" that are in Scripture. Uh, The ones that they cite, are there's there's actually three of them. They cite Job 1, Job 2, Job 38, actually four, and one in Daniel. So Job 1 reads, Now it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Job 2 reads, Again, it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them to stand himself before Yahweh. Job 38 reads, When the morning star sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Finally, Daniel reads, he answered and said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Those are the four they use. Now, it's clear that the term "bena Elohim, in these verses are all referring to angelic beings. That's not in doubt. But if these were the only examples, I would, be, I would be persuaded. But they're not. For example, in Hosea, sons of God is described as the people of God. In Hosea, it reads, it will be said of them, you are the sons of the living God. And in Deuteronomy, it reads, you are the sons of Yahweh, your God. You shall not gash yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. Here the Hebrew, Ben, Jehovah Elohim, is used just as it is in Job and Daniel. And as we expand to the full counsel of God, we find abundant examples in the New Testament. Also describing the sons of God as believers, as the people of God. Not angels, not kings, and certainly not Nephilim. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, For they shall be called sons of God. Romans 8 reads, For as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So at minimum, we can conclude that the sons of God are simply sons of God. They are believers. Another verse the proponents of this angelic theory will point to is 1 Peter 3. And I want you guys to turn there in your Bibles, because we're going to camp out on three sections. This is the first of three. It says First 1 Peter 3, verse 18 through 20, and it reads, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now you guys got to hang with me here because we're going to get into the deep weeds. Um, if, if I, I've already got a controversial passage, but now I've just brought in another controversial passage, okay? So we need to have the proper interpretation here, particularly verses 19 and 20. Uh, we have to ask and answer this very important question. Where did Jesus go? And who were those who were disobedient in the days of Noah? Those two questions. Where did Jesus go and who were disobedient in the days of Noah? Now, there's five different interpretations here. Let me simplify and just say four of them have Jesus going to hell. One of them does not. But let me just read them to you so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, The first theory, Jesus went and died when he died, went and preached to people in hell offering them a second chance for salvation. Jesus, after he died, went and preached to people in hell, proclaiming to them he triumphed over them, and their condemnation was now complete. Number three, Jesus, after he died, went to hell and proclaimed the release to people who repented just before they died in the flood and led them out of their imprisonment into heaven. Number four, Jesus, after he died and rose, but before he ascended into heaven, went to, went to hell And proclaim triumph over the fallen angels who had sinned by marrying human women before the flood. That's the angelic theory, by the way. Then number five. This one's very different. It says, When Noah was building the ark, Jesus Christ was in Noah, speaking through Noah in the spirit to unbelievers who were on the earth then and are now in hell. Now, the preacher will always state their preferred position last. And that's the case here. Uh, so if you're tracking with me, we know the first one's false. Why? Because Scripture simply does not allow for a second chance of salvation for anyone, let alone those who are in hell. As for theories 2, 3, and 4, there's simply no reason to believe Jesus descended into hell. Now, some say, well, Ephesians 4 says that. Well, let's look at Ephesians 4. Now, this is expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above the, all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Now the correct interpretation here is just as he ascended up to God, he descended down to Earth. It doesn't say that he descended below the earth. Now back to Peter, first Peter. Remember what Peter states. He says, "He went and he made proclamation to the spirits now in heaven. Who once were disobedient. Now, seriously, why would Jesus go and preach to anybody in hell, let alone fallen angels, that cannot be redeemed by his blood? Now, it is the context of verse 20 that verifies to who he preached and when and where Jesus went. Let me read it again He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The best interpretation here is the fifth one that I gave. When Noah was building the ark, as the verse indicates, Jesus Christ was in Noah, speaking through Noah in the spirit. To unbelievers, specifically the line of Cain, who were on the earth at that time, And are now in hell. Now, 2 Peter 2 calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Noah from the line of Seth, get this Noah from the line of Seth speaking in the spirit of Christ for 120 years to the line of Cain while he built an enormous barge in his front yard. That seems to be the most obvious and plain reading of the text without the sensation or the supposition of Jesus Christ going to hell and preaching to fallen angels or unbelievers. Even 1 Peter 4 tells us that Jesus Christ preached to those who were alive, but who are now dead, and they're they're not angels, they're men who were in the flesh. It reads, For to this the gospel has been proclaimed, even to those who are now dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh as men, they live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now, let's camp out a bit on Second Peter. This is our second big section. So, if you would move to Second Peter two with me, this is another big proof text to prove the angelic theory. In its full context, we'll read Second uh, Peter two four. We'll start there. And, and my my advice here is: don't blend the verses, but keep them separate. Keep them in their categories. As I'm reading this, it reads uh, 2 Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and delivered them to chains of darkness being kept for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to con- destruction By reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then, very important, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Here we have three so very important, three examples of divine judgment on the wicked. And these three are separate and distinct judgments that occurred at three different times. Number one, the judgment of the angels that fell. Number two, the judgment of the world in the days of Noah. And number three, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is no reason to make an arbitrary connection of the type of sins committed from one judgment to another. The vital connection of these three is they're all divine judgments and that the Lord knows how to rescue the remnant from trial as he did with Noah and Lot. And he knows how to keep the ungodly under punishment for the day of judgment as he did the fallen angels. There's no reason to blend them together and thus project the sexual sins of Sodom onto the sins of the angels. After all, the time of the sins of the angels did not even take place at the time of the sins at the time of the flood. So again, it's a big fat no to the angelic theory. Now finally, I know this is a long point, but the final verse to promote the angelic theory is in Jude, maybe the strongest one they use. And the same conflagration is made here, wrongly made, in my opinion. And this is Jude, verse 5. So Jude, verse 5. Thanks for hanging with me, Hannah. Um, (laughs) This is getting into the weeds here, but it's verse 5. It says, now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these, in gross sexual immorality, and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Okay. Now, we're getting a bit technical here, but the categories are critical. The theme here that ties these verses together is God's judgment for rebellion against him. It's rejection of God. It is not sexual sin. Look at verse 5, the rebellion of the nation of Israel. Verse 6, the rebellion of the angels, the fallen angels. Verse 7, the rebellion of Sodom and Gomorrah. They have all gone the way of Cain. They've all gone the way of sin. Look at verse 11 that follows. Woe to them. For they have gone the way of Cain. That is the common thread, sin and rebellion. First, let me point out that the angels didn't leave their bodies, but rather their domain, their abode, their their habitation. This speaks of them leaving their location. Remember, they fell from heaven in the rebellion. Now, the big mistake that people make here, this is the big mistake, is combining verses 6 and 7. Now, look again at verses 6 and 7. In verse 7, it says, Just as... At the beginning of verse 7, the just as refers back to the rebellion of the angels in verse 6, not referring back to sexual sin. And I also want you to look at the phrase, indulged in the same way as these, in gross sexual immorality. In the same way, in that verse, is talking about the other cities around Sodom and Gomorrah that indulged in sexual immorality. It just wasn't those two towns. The other cities are the predicate. You see that? That you go back to. You don't go back to the angels as a predicate. In fact, the the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities roundabout was so different than the sin of the angels that Peter had to specify the specific sin they engaged in, which was sexual immorality and going after strange flesh. Again, the commonality here in Jude is, is not sexual sin, it's rebellion. So the distinctions are critical here. And I think that's why the great expositor, John Calvin, called the angelic theory an absurdity. And I have to agree. Finally, as to the argument that the angels in our verses today, in verse 2, as Genesis 6 indicates, took wives for themselves, whomever they chose, The idea that those are angels, we find Jesus Christ making the opposite case in Mark 12. When when asked about marriage and the resurrection, what did Jesus say? He said, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Thus, the sons of God cannot be angels, for they do not marry. Now, I'll briefly touch on the other theories. The second theory, which was the divine king's theory, Stands on much weaker legs. There actually exists no scriptural support for that theory. The third theory I mentioned was the sons of God are simply believers and the daughters of Cain are simply non-believers. Now that's closer to the truth and that could hold true in isolation. But we can't ignore the abundant context in continuity presented in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 of the line of Cain. Chapter 5 is the line of Seth that lead up to chapter 6 and help us frame chapter 6. We've covered why the sons of God can't be angels, mighty men, divine kings, or Nephilim. And that leads us to the context, the continuity, and the connections that make clear that the sons of God are the line of Seth and the daughters of men are the line of Cain. So let's start with the second point of your outline. That's the context. Context is so critical. It's really the first rule of biblical interpretation. So we must look at who is consistently being dealt with in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Who is Yahweh addressing in chapter 6? Mankind. Who is the subject of Moses' narrative in chapter 6? Mankind. The focus is not angels. It's not Nephilim, nor mighty men, or divine kings. What's the proof text? Well, let's look at verse 1. It says, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth. In verse 3, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he indeed is flesh. Now, important, verse 3 is not Moses speaking. He's not even speaking for Yahweh. These are the very words of the creator of both the angels and the man. And again, the focus is man, not angels. Now, verse 5, then Yahweh saw the evil of man was great on the earth that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In verse 6, Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Verse 7, and Yahweh said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I regret that I've made them. Again, Yahweh is speaking of blotting out man from the face of the earth, not angels. In verse 12, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. If, in fact, the sons of God are angels and were responsible for the corruption by taking as wives the daughters of men, wouldn't it make sense that the text would indicate God's disapproval and the regret for making angels? The context, however, indicates that God was dealing with mankind all the way through. Further, the first mention of angels is later in chapter 16 of Genesis. It's consistent with the law of first mention. This is of the, the angel of Yahweh that speaks to Hagar. It reads, Then the angel of Yahweh said to her, Return to your mistress and humble yourself under her hands. Knowing the reader's unfamiliarity with this new character, an angel, it makes sense that Moses would further define the angel as of Yahweh. So there's no confusion over, the being, over this first introduction of this angelic being. We don't have that here in verse 2 when introducing the sons of God. Therefore, the best context is the plain meaning of the text. The sons of God are the sons of God. They are man. They are believers. Now let's look at the lines of continuity that lead up to chapter 6. This is point 3 in your outline. Now, I've said that the daughters of men are in less dispute, but the continuity here in chapters 4 and 5 really help us with both lines. Two weeks ago in chapter 4, we saw the line of Cain that Matt went through, which revealed the way of Cain. You remember, a line manifested with deceit, pride, self-loathing, rebellion, polygamy, violence, and murder. And then last week, Brad told us about the genealogy of the line of Seth from chapter 5 with generations of Adam Adam leading up to Noah, the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now remember back to the garden. There was only one perfect line in paradise, right? In perfect communion with God. But then with the decisive fall of man, in Genesis 3, suddenly two lines emerge. Firstborn is Cain, the progenitor of the ungodly line, and who true to character kills the secondborn, Abel, of the godly line. Then Adam knew his wife again, and she had gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has set for me another seed in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Here the godly line restarts with Seth, the seed, the good seed. So leading up to the flood, there's two mutually exclusive, unconnected lines, two very different brothers with two very different missions and two very different destinies one by the way of righteousness leading to life and one by the way of sin leading to death, one carrying the seed, the Messiah, the other one in opposition to that seed, the Messiah. The godly line of Seth would continue through the flood through Noah and his family. The ungodly line of Cain would be exterminated in judgment. The continuity of these two lines is critical to understand. Please don't miss this, the collision of these two lines is the fallout that we face in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, which read, Now it happened when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, so that the daughters of men were good in appearance. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. In isolation, we could wildly speculate on the identity of the sons of God, couldn't we? With the established continuity, though, how do we suddenly ignore what Moses has gone to such great lengths to establish? And that's the identity in detail of these two lines over the previous two chapters, which were the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. Finally, let's look at the lines of connection, point four in your outline. So what are these connections? They have to do with the doctrine of separation that runs all through Scripture, What? And what seems to separate these two lines, the godly and and ungodly, is the connection to the earth itself. The sons of God from the line of Seth are never connected to the earth, while the sons of Cain are continually connected with the earth, with the land. Look back at chapter 4, at the birth of Cain and Abel, and listen to their identification. It says, again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was the keeper of flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. So you might ask, well, what's wrong with Cain's connection or identification with the earth? Well, when we take, take it back, the results of the, to the fall in Genesis 3, we see that cursed is the ground because of you. Further, you remember how it went. Cain brought the fruit from what? From the cursed earth, which God had no regard for. The result of anger and jealousy of Cain leads him to kill Abel. And look at the Lord's response to Cain. He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now cursed are you from the ground. The curse of the ground had become the curse of Cain, the curse of the line of Cain. Listen to verse 12, what Cain's curse looked like, his connection to the earth looked like. It says, when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You'll be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. What's remarkable is the connection is exclusively for the line of Cain. But the line of Seth finds almost no mention of earth or the ground in its entire genealogy at the end of chapter 4 through the whole of chapter 5. The only mention of the ground was in Noah's father's prophecy. Remember Lamech from last week of a future freedom from the curse of the ground. And it reads, now he called his name Noah, saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. Bottom line, the line of Cain, connection to the cursed earth. The line of Seth, look forward to a future rest from that cursed earth. So it makes sense that Moses marks when the separation of these lines is breached in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Which read, now it happened when men began to multiply on the face of the land that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were good in appearance and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. The ungodly result is verse 5. Look at verse 5. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And further, it's not just the evil of man that gets judged here. Or else God would have spared the judgment on the earth itself and just wiped out mankind. But look at verse 12 of this chapter. Very interesting. It says, When God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Did you get that? I'm about to destroy them with the earth. The earth is marked for destruction as well, And who's associated, who's connected and identified with the cursed earth? The line of Cain. The line of Cain is. All that to say, this connection to Cain to the cursed earth, as seen in chapter 4, is a clue to the identity of the ungodly daughters of men from the line of Cain, who were mixing with the godly sons of God from the line of Seth, One line, the ungodly connected to the cursed earth, marrying and polluting the godly line not connected to the cursed earth, thus threatening the line that would bring the Messiah. You see that? And creating such an abomination of sin that mankind had to be exterminated and the world as they knew it destroyed. The connection of the ungodly to the earth is prominent also in the book of Revelation. This is chapter three, because you kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. One line, the church, the bride of Christ is kept from the hour of testing, taken out of the destruction and judgment of the great tribulation. While the other line is identified how? As those who dwell on the earth, who are not separated from or spared from the wrath of God. Does that sound familiar? That's what we're looking at at Genesis 6. Over and over again, we see a particular connection to the earth of a people destined for destruction. Revelation later reads, and all who dwell on the earth, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. He's talking about the beast here. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. And again, those who dwell on the earth, you see the identification? Those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. But here's a great New Testament clarification of this. Philippians 3, and listen to Paul's emotion his grief over those connected to earthly things. It reads in Philippians 3 For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even crying as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, and glory is in their shame, who set their thoughts on earthly things. Now look at the contrast, to the next verse. For our citizenship is in heaven from which, we, which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. One line, one people the church, connected to things of heaven. We have a heavenly calling. The other line, the line of Cain and the way of Cain, grounded to the earth and earthly things. Now, one more stunning example of this is revealed in the two Enoch's from chapters 4 and 5. One Enoch, uh, the first Enoch from the line of Cain, He's identified with a city. Remember that? And how do you get more grounded to the earth and have a city named after you? But it reads Then Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after his son. Now, the other Enoch we heard about last week, this was from the line of Seth. And this Enoch has a heavenly calling. Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. Enoch of the line of Seth didn't die and get buried in the cursed earth, did he? He was harpazoed. He was snatched away. He was raptured. Brothers and sisters, there's no coincidences in Scripture. So to wrap up this idea, this commingling seen in chapter 6 of the sons of God and the daughters of men, the ungodly Cain mixing with the godly Seth is the unholy alliance that Yahweh will not let stand. Yahweh is so grieved, he destroys not only the people, but the earth itself with water. But please don't miss the grace of God manifest in Noah's family of the line of Seth. Floating above the cursed earth, you see the separation? Separate from it, emerging unscathed from the greatest apocalypse the world has ever seen. The doctrine of separation reestablished. By wiping out the line of Cain. Okay, now we can move to verses 3 and (laughs) 4. That was just verses 1 and 2. So verse 3. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he indeed is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So Yahweh must be striving with man because he mentions that one day it will stop. And what is this striving? Well, the most plain and obvious reading of it refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. As John 16 records, convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And why would this striving, this convicting of sin of unbelievers end? It ends because they became so hopelessly corrupt and hardened as to be beyond redemption. Man in his fleshly desires has gone wild in the days of Noah. Thus God told Noah later in chapter 6, the end of all flesh has come before me. And then in chapter 7, he says, and all flesh that moved on the earth breathed its last. The grief of God over the extreme depravity of these days of Noah did bring global calamity. But it was the grace of God breaking through the darkness, marking out righteous Noah, who would preach to the ungodly, bringing the light for another 120 years before the flood of judgment. Just as God's long suffering continues today to wait in our evil day. Now to point five, the line of the Nephilim. This is a star attraction of this section of scripture. And I'm really going to disappoint you on this one. Uh, but let's read it. It says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. And when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Well, who were they? We don't really know. We do know they, none of them survived the flood. We know that. And we know from the verse that they were already on the earth. Look at the verse before the line of Seth and the line of Cain cohabitated. They were already there. And the verse says also afterward, meaning they were both on the earth at the same time, probably for those 120 years right up to the flood. So we can conclude that Moses didn't want us to conflate those who were of the Nephilim with the offspring that came from the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Since he went out of his way to say, look, they existed before and during the unholy union of these two lines. So I hate to smash anyone's puzzle box here, but there is no evidence that the offspring of the lines of Seth and the lines of Cain are supernatural beings. And there's no evidence that the Nephilim are supernatural beings. The word Nephilim comes from the Hebrew word Nephal, which doesn't mean giants. It means fallen ones as mighty, and and, uh, it's curious because it's described, if you look at the end of verse 4, they're mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And I think that helps us interpret the translation of fallen ones, which I agree as many commentators believe that it should be, instead of fallen ones, those that fall on others, as in attackers of others, which... Which fits why they were called mighty and renowned. Because we have to think about the fallen world in which they existed, that they were famous in. It was a corrupt, violent, debauched, fallen world. What kind of men would be called mighty and renowned in that kind of world? The most evil and violent leaders. Is Adolf Hitler renowned? Is Joseph Stalin renowned? Mao Zedong renowned? Yes, they are powerful, influential tyrants, famous for slaughter. So it makes sense. Why else would a wicked world revere them as heroes? Because they were the strongest, most wicked, and most depraved, and the most feared. Now as to the legend of their size, were they as the sons of Anak? Or Goliath and the brothers of Gath that showed up after the flood? Who were giants? Well, the text doesn't say that here in Genesis. I suppose that's possible. It might be even likely. But the ancient lore of this size, the size, their great size of the Nephilim in Genesis, perhaps came more from the influence in the account of, of the book of Numbers. We, you remember when the 12 spies spied out Canaan and they observed abnormally large people? It reads, there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Remember that this is their personal account of what they think they saw in Canaan. And their impression is interesting. They saw themselves as grasshoppers in the eyes of the Anakites. It seems in their fear they felt insignificant to the more populous and maybe even larger Anakites. And in their terror, they simply described them as Nephilim, which became sort of a catchword to describe giant people. The bottom line There's a good case to be made for tamping down the exaggerated interpretation of who were the Nephilim. But what should never be tamped down or tempered is the ugly sin of man in Genesis that grieved God. It grieved God to the point of the annihilation of the human race. Look at verse 5. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth. and He was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. It was the wretched sin of man who was only evil continually that so deeply grieved Yahweh. But please don't miss the amazing grace of God shining through the darkness and the death and the devastation that was to come. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. God's abundant grace always emerges out of God's abundant grief. God is grieved at the state of man today as evil builds, just as he was of the state of man in the days of Noah. It was his grief that brought his wrath. Jonathan Edwards described the building up of God's wrath like a dam ready to let loose as it ravaged the earth in the days of Noah and as it's building up today, right now. This building up of God's wrath. This is what Edwards wrote. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course. When once it is let loose, it is only held back because of the common grace of God today. All men and women benefit from this common grace. But the grace of God to save Noah was a grace of another kind, an amazing effectual grace that God has only for his own. Not the common grace of sunset, surf, and seafood, but the effectual grace of eternal life, eternal salvation for his remnant. For God always has his remnant that are on the narrow road that he has set his love upon, giving grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy for his people that deserve none of the grace and they deserve none of the mercy. But he decides to have mercy On whom he'll have mercy. And he decides to have compassion. On whom he'll have compassion. But he also decides to harden. On whom he will harden. And that's those that are on the wide road. It is by grace alone that we are not also marching down that wide road. It is by grace alone that we enter through the door Jesus Christ. Just as it was grace alone that Noah and his family entered through that door. As verse 8 states, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The question for you this morning is have you found that grace? See, ultimately the great mystery isn't who are the sons of God. It's not who is the Nephilim. The ultimate mystery is why has he shown you and I grace and mercy? Saving us not from a coming flood, but from the coming fires of judgment from his wrath. For we all grieved him. And none is righteous. We have all sinned and fallen short. We were all in the way of Cain. Weren't we? As unbelievers, just as sinful, just as rebellious. So why do we get grace and mercy while others march on the wide road to destruction? Great question, isn't it? Because of his good pleasure. Because of his good pleasure. Because of his good pleasure, he pulls out a remnant. And draws them to his son. Brothers and sisters, that alone should drive us to our knees in gratitude. And if this truth has dawned on you for the first time this morning, that God has sovereignly made a way for sinners, that leads to life, not wrath, just as he made a way for Noah, then enter through the one door. Just as Noah entered through that one door. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. This is the son of God. This is Jesus Christ who died and was buried and resurrected three days later. Calling you saying, I'm the door. Enter through me and be saved. And if for the first time, this is penetrated. And you're really, really hearing this this morning. And it mourns you that you grieved God. Understand that it is by his grace that he has given you this heart wound. It is by his mercy that he has cut you to the quick. He means to wound you so he can save you. It is by his love that he calls you now. Enter through me and be saved. So repent now and turn to him with everything you got. While you also turn away from him every sinful thing you were. And put all your faith and trust in him. Let's pray as Noel and the team comes up. Heavenly Father, we are in a world of the way of Cain, and Lord, we are so grateful that you pulled us out of that world. And Lord, we uh, are so blessed by the clarity of this word, of this message, of these two lines, the way of Cain and the way of Seth. And Lord, we are thankful to you. We give you all the grace and and gratitude for what you've done for us to save us. We thank you, Lord, and we we commit this, this day to you. We commit our lives to you. We give you everything we've got. In Jesus' name, amen.